Sabres Live is presented by Seneca Resorts and Casinos. Nothing else comes close. Back again by Duchesne, knocked down by Platt. Platt slides in over the line. Platt took the shot. Here we are again on Sabres Live and hearing those beautiful, beautiful calls from Rick Jenneret. And we told you yesterday that we'll be honoring the life and career of RJ, the Hall of Fame broadcaster. We'll be doing so this Sunday at Key Bank Center with a special tribute, Marty Baran. Um, what a day that's going to be remembering RJ, the man behind the mic. Doors open at the arena at 3.30. The ceremony begins at 5. Uh, it's going to be really just a wonderful roundtable conversations, discussions. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly can't wait to be able to share that with you both in arena and on MSG, and on Sabres.com, and our social media platforms, and general admission tickets are free to the public and will be available, or pardon me, are available, of course, right now, Sabres.com slash RJ. Now, one other thing that I know you want to dive into here, Marty, is some new news that along with remembering RJ this Sunday, we're actually going to be starting a marathon of broadcasts remembering RJ through his classic calls in classic games starting on Friday on MSG and running for a couple of weeks. So um, I know this is this is just another way to help all of us, you know, remember in the best way possible where we were during those times, you know, and it'll all come flooding back as we watch some of those classic games. And I know that one of the, I don't want to call them most significant moment uh, of the early days of the pandemic, but it's when we started replaying a lot of classic games, when the season was put on pause in March of 2020. And all of a sudden we're like, Hey, what are we going to do? And then we, you know, pulled up some amazing games and playoff games and regular season games and whatnot to revisit right with the fans and then what you can do as a as a certain generation of 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 sabers fans you can kind of pass that on those memories those uh Mm -hmm. uh, those moments and i think the same thing here as we're going to get uh rj classics being broadcast on msg and sunday i believe that there's going to be a marathon of games Mm -hmm. throughout the day leading up to uh, remembering RJ at the arena. So if you are one that uh, can't make it in or, you know, is from out of town and maybe want to just keep keep up with what's going on, you're going to have a bunch of RJ Classic games on MSG. And then mm-hmm. you will have the, the, the conversation, the, you know, the RJ, remembering RJ on MSG as well at five o'clock. And we'll dive into uh, a lot of NHL news later on in the show today. Our good friend Shana Goldman from The Athletics is going to join us uh, a day earlier, which is great for me. Maybe less so for you because you're flying kind of solo tomorrow. I don't know. What are you doing tomorrow? Because I'm not going to be there to help. I'm know. flying solo tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, going to figure that out with Jay and Jeff later today. Um, I think Dan is joining me tomorrow. But, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm actually, like I said, you, you asked me yesterday, I'm in Kentucky right now. Tonight, I'm coming back to Buffalo because tomorrow I felt like I needed to be in my 
you know, my studio, if I want to mm -hmm. call it that way, so that I can be well prepared. But uh, uh, yeah, Dan's going to join. We're obviously going to talk about RJ. We're going to talk about some NHL news if any happens. But yeah, uh, you know, you're doing your thing, and uh, I'm 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 going to be trying my best to uh, to keep up with anything that's happening on Friday on Sabers Live. <laughs> well, it's obviously you know it, it all builds now towards remembering RJ on Sunday. And we uh, we really look forward to being able to share more memories of the great Rick Jenneret uh, with you at that time. Um, obviously, the big news that we'll dive deeper into with Shayna at the bottom of the hour are the contracts that were signed yesterday. Um, Austin Matthews getting an extension in Toronto, four years, uh, 13.25 per year. It makes him the yes. highest paid player um, in the NHL at that number. What is the significance of the Matthews deal from a league-wide perspective and, more specifically, from a Sabre perspective in your mind? Oh, yeah, I'll start with the Sabre's perspective because a lot of the numbers now are always going to keep kind of one-upping one another, right? I mean, the best player in the National Hockey League is Connor McDavid, but now Austin Matthews is the top-paid player. Connor McDavid is actually the third-best played player uh, in the NHL after Nathan McKinnon got his deal done last year and now Austin Matthews. So it's just normal progression that you always are going to get somebody else claiming that top prize. Austin Matthews went from... 14.6% of the salary cap when he signed his five-year deal last to now 15.8% of the salary cap. So he went up about a percent, 1.2% of the, the percentage of the pie, right? So mm -hmm. then what it means for the Sabres is when I look, obviously, at Rasmus Dahlin. And we've talked about Rasmus Dahlin a lot this summer about when is the new deal coming up? Is it last year of his current contract, a bridge deal, between his entry-level deal and what would be a multi-year uh, extension. So what does that mean? Um, I don't think that Rasmus Dahlin is going to be a 14 or 15% salary cap type of player. But it, could he be at 12%? You look around the NHL, right? You look at when Drew Doughty signed his contract, he was at 13.5% percentage of the salary cap. Well, yeah, he had Stanley Cup, so that helps. But... Can Dalene be at 12, 12.5% of the salary cap? And what does that mean? Well, mm -hmm. if it's 12%, it's 10 million. It's 10 million average, right? The, if you, you base it off of $85 million cap, it's not there yet, but it will be there next year. So that's that's how I look at the Austin Matthews contract. I look at it twofold. Best, um, uh, highest paid player in the NHL, but he's not the best player in the NHL, but that's just normal. That you Some years he's pretty darn close. Well, when you score 60 goals a year, um, yeah. did not do it last year, did it the year before, that's going to put you in the top three or four conversation. And by that point, these guys are separated by a million, uh, 500,000 a year. So it doesn't really make that much of an impact. But two is, okay, what does that mean for Rasmus Dahlin? What percentage of the cap can we expect for Rasmus Dahlin? And how does that, that translate in actual dollars at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And the other deal at the almost opposite end of the spectrum, despite being a number one pick overall. And this is really, I mean, 
I guess some could have seen it coming given how long he was sitting there and nobody else <laughs> wanted to bite. And we talked about why doesn't somebody just offer sheet him at some point to make it life yeah. even more miserable for the Rangers. If you basically get them for free at under 4 million, you know, um, like the compensation is so minimal on offer sheets. But anyway, Alexi Lafreniere has got a two year bargain deal. And I say the bargain from a Rangers standpoint, I would assume. No. Oh, absolutely. A bargain deal. I think, I think Lafreniere is a very, very good NHL player. Has he lived up to a first overall pick? No, but it was a weird development time for Lafreniere. He got drafted the summer of the pandemic. It was the first virtual draft. And then the next year is a shortened season that starts in January with a taxi squad. How does that affect a player, right? It's not like Dalene first year you're playing a full season in the NHL with a full summer development uh, and and everything that you want at your disposal, um, you know, uh, for Ma- for um, Lafreniere, it, it's been tougher. He's a good player. He does his best work, I believe, with the Rangers when he's on a third line, and he was with Capocacco, who was a top uh, draft pick as well, and Philip Hedel. Um, Will that change? Would would they give Lafreniere more of a top six role? Maybe. Um, but now that's on him to perform. But I, I still think Lafreniere is a really good player. I think it's a bargain. I think you're right. There's definitely a lot of teams that could and should have looked at an offer sheet, but somehow GMs are really reluctant to uh, um, to do those things, to do offer sheets. And and again, would the Ranger have matched the offer sheet? I think they probably would to a certain level. You're not going to pay Lafreniere four four and a half or five million dollar a year. But anything mm-hmm. in the two and a half to three and a half, I think the Rangers would have matched. So um, I think that's what they got. They got a deal done at two point three million a year on average. Yeah, and obviously when you look at the Rangers and their you know salary structure, you've still got three more years of Panarin at eleven six. Yep. Um, you've got a long term commitment and. Uh, if we're going to sit here and talk about Cousins and Thompson as being good deals, I think the Rangers have a good long-term deal of six more years at you know, Zibanejad at eight and a half. Um, eight and still a half, got yep. Four more years of Kreider at six and a half. You've got a lot of Trocek. You've still got six years with Vinny at, at 5.6. And then you get into the youth, right? You've got Heedle at four years at 4.4, which is presumably at the very minimum, the next step for Lafreniere. He trails him by a couple of years in age. It's reasonable to see Lafreniere at least doubling this current deal that he just signed at 2.3. And if he lives up to expectations, you would expect him to get into that range. And they've got to deal with Capocacco after this year as well, because he's at 2.1 on an expiring deal as an RFA. So th- and you got six years of Adam Fox still, right? I mean, a yeah, I mean, for Adam Fox, six years of him at nine and a half. Think of it this way: like I just talked about Rasmus Dalin, maybe getting to twelve percent of the salary cap, and that would mm-hmm. mean ten million a year. Uh, Adam Fox, when he signed his contract, eleven point six percent of the salary cap made it nine and a half million dollars. Adam Fox could yeah. easily be. Top two, top three defensemen in the NHL right now. Obviously, Carlson had the year he had last year. And you can look at Kel McCarr. But I think you got to put Adam Fox in that conversation. You got to put Rasmus Dallin in that conversation too. But you have a valued contract for Adam Fox for six more years at $9.5 million. I think mm-hmm. that's, uh, again, a lot of flexibility opens up when you get those type of deals. 
Right. And the, the interesting thing for the Rangers will be two years from now, because two years from now, they won't be, they won't be looking at 5.6 million for Shesterkin. Uh, two, two years nope. from now, Keandre Miller is going to need a new deal. Uh, two years from now, not 3.8 yet. Yeah. Right. Lafreniere is <laughs> going to need a new deal. So yeah, it's fascinating knowing the term that they've still committed to the others. So obviously the Rangers, like so many teams sit there hoping that the salary cap has an astronomical rise here. And it makes life an awful lot easier for them. So we'll dive in a little deeper on NHL news and, quite frankly, the salary cap itself, because our friend Shana Goldman definitely discussed that as one of the areas that perhaps the league can, you know, um, perhaps have more flexibility with and ways to improve the game. Maybe it loosens things up as far as deals across the league. We'll dive in with uh, Shana from The Athletic at the bottom of the hour. Tim Graham, by the way, um, a really, really nice piece uh, in memory of Rick Jenneret today in The Athletic as well. So if you have an opportunity and a subscription to that, would encourage you to do so. Um, Tim talking to a lot of our colleagues, a lot of former players and executives within the Sabres organization over the last number of decades that uh, that were really able to put their their own unique perspective, um, personal touches, if you will, much like Jordan LaBarber did yesterday when talking to us about his first interactions with RJ, and we love that story as well. But the one thing that you can't separate um, is RJ from any great moment in Sabres history, and we led this show today with their only Game 7 win. It was Derek Plant. It was against Ottawa. And you know how history often leads you to the most uh, wonderful moments, the nostalgic, romantic moments, if you will. Oh, remember this, right? And you sometimes gloss over the hardships to get to that great place. Well, when we dive in as with our team of the day today, it's the Ottawa Senators. And man, like for all the good history that there is, Buffalo against Ottawa, there have been some trying times as well, not the least of which was when you think back to that first ever playoff series, the Hashik drama on and off the ice, the emergence of Steve Shields saving the day. This team was down three games to two going to Corral Center then in Ottawa and having to win a game to force a game seven, which is the only game seven they've ever won. And Shields delivers a masterful, probably the greatest game of his career then and now, you know, as life went on. And and I just, I'm amazed that when you think of the history of these two teams, how different might it have been if Ottawa had won that series and you didn't hear that next step here, you know, here come the Buffalo Sabres, as RJ phrased it, to the Legion of Doom. And keep in mind that Philadelphia was a cup finalist that year. The Sabres may, yes. you know, they lost to Philadelphia. This was a really good Philly team. Next year, the Sabres are in the conference final. Next year, the Sabres are in the Stanley Cup final. Like if Steve Shields doesn't pull off that game in game six, who knows what the history of this Sabres team was in that era? Oh, no, I, absolutely. Shields in game six was... Uh, standing on his head, he was getting run over as we're showing a clip of him on MSG right now where the Ottawa Senators banged him a few times and they wanted to get in his uh, in his head and he, he stood tall. I still remember Duffer because I was playing with the Hall Olympics in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League at the time, which is across the river from Ottawa. I remember watching the game where Dom... Um, came out and then you know shields goes in and i'm thinking I, i'm gonna get a phone call 
I'm staying close to the phone because I'm like, I'm 45 minutes away. They're going to need somebody to come and be their third goalie. And then they showed Andre Trefilov on the bench later in the game because he had to get dressed. He was the third goalie from the stands. He got dressed. I was like, oh, man, I'm not getting called up now. I was kind of disappointed. I wanted to experience that playoff rivalry thing. But Shieldsy with, uh, you know, his, his, his uh, game six heroics was uh, was was awesome. And then it led to, you know, a moment where you bought a last-minute ticket to be able to go to game seven in Buffalo Duffer and be right there mm-hmm. at the blue line when Derek Plant scored. And um, I used to love Ron Tugnut because – Tugger was a goalie with the Quebec Nordiques early in his career. He had that masterful performance against Ray Bork and the Boston Bruins of 70 saves mm-hmm. in a regular mm-hmm. season game. Uh, and uh, then this happens, right? Derek Plant over the blue line and it blows up his glove. I mean, look, as a goaltender, I feel bad because we didn't have the equipment that the players and the goalies have now. And we didn't have mm-hmm. the tools to dry off the gloves and make sure that maybe... Maybe now goalies have two or three gloves to be able to. I mean, if you're in overtime in the springtime, it's hot, it's wet. You you get the the dry glove, right? And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to rotate them up. Run Tugnut didn't have that luxury. His glove was very flimsy and wet, and the shot came in, and Derek Plant had a rocket for a shot. It hit his glove. The glove flipped over, and it went into the net. Like uh, I felt bad for for Run Tugnut because I've been there before where my I don't want to say my equipment failed me, but it's still not, um, you know, your your equipment didn't help you in that moment. Uh, right. And it just happened to be an overtime game seven. It's crazy. Steve Shields had uh, only 15 appearances on his NHL resume before he was thrust into action in that series in 97 against Ottawa. Now, he came in in relief and secured a win, but then, despite 35 saves on 36 shots in his first start of that series, he lost. And then he had a bit of a tough one. He lost game five. He gave up four on 26 shots, and that's what makes his 31-save shutout in game six one of the more unlikely impressive goaltending feats in Sabres playoff history. You know, people were thinking, oh, the pressure, they're not going to get through this. It's too much to not have Dominic Hasek at this point in time. And back-to-back losses, this doesn't look good with Ottawa being on home ice. Man, it is something to think that he pulled that one out and that they were able to then come home. And it was a shaky, it was the most nervous game I think I've seen both an audience and at times both teams feel like on the ice. You know, there was just, how are we going to get through? And and it was a low-scoring game, and it just, it. I can't imagine what it was like. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever specifically asked Razor some of the stories of just what the tension was like going into that one. Um, and they snuck it out, thanks to Derek Plan, and, and it's all part of now this Ottawa-Buffalo playoff lore more than anything but i mean you know when you think back to when ottawa came into the league in the early 90s well what what was buffalo consisting of at the time lafontaine mcgillney howard chuck and rechuck like they feasted (laughs) on the expansion senators i was looking at the numbers today Like LaFontaine scored 14 times in 15 games, and he and McGillney had almost exactly two points a game against Ottawa over a couple of years. It was just, you know, they would love to run up the score. And um, 
And then, you know, as we were talking off air in preparation of this today, um, it was kind of crazy to think that after Shields had to come in for Dom in 97, think about how great Hashik was in 1999 when they met again in the playoffs. Like Dom was, this might have been one of Dom's finest hours. Yeah, so I listen, Duffer. I you're kind of cutting up on me, so I don't know if it's me or if it's uh, you know our signal that's uh, um, breaking it up a little bit. But I, I just wanted to say something about Steve Shields quickly, and then we can maybe see if uh, if it's working better. But the thing with Shields is he was so loved in the locker room that the guys wanted to play so hard for him. Obviously, that was a huge thing, right? The fact that uh, remember the fight that he had against uh, Gart Snow, like everybody loves Shields. So they wanted to play hard for him. So when he came in in that Ottawa series, they wanted to play really, really hard for Shields. Um, yeah, the Ottawa Senators, it, it wasn't just the 97 playoffs, the 99 playoffs. I remember the, sw- the sweep, uh, Sabres win in four. That was the Pekka against Alexa Yashin. Like Pekka was glued to Yashin the whole time. It was when Pekka really, you know, solidified his, I'm a top center. I can shut you down. That was amazing. Uh, it was a clinic on how to, you know, back in the days, they used to shadow Mario Lemieux and try to shadow Wayne Gretzky and all of that. And and Mario always found a way to get his points and, and to, to produce. But but when Pekka shadowed Yashin, shut him down. And I actually, it stayed with Alexi Yashin for a long time. Like, yeah. Not a playoff performer. Look at what Pekka did to him. So that 99 series was was pretty amazing as well. And Pekka kept shadowing Yashin in their days on the island. <laughs> I'm losing you. I don't know. I may have oh, to move no. my uh, my Wi-Fi. I don't know if it's yeah, just me. You keep talking. Up. I'll move around and just get to a better spot. Well, the one thing that obviously was, you know, it was sad when Michael moved on from the Sabres, but then he became teammates of Alexi Yashin, and that was incredibly strange to see based on the shutdown performance that we had seen from one against the other in that 99 series. The crazy part about the 99 series for me was, uh, actually, I just relocated to Ottawa at the time and was covering the Senators, and um, that first game, Buffalo had very few shots on goal. They were dramatically outshot, which would become the theme of the very short series. In fact, Buffalo was outshot on average 40 to 26 over the four games. But it was that second game that really put the doubt back in the Senators' minds. Miro Shatam scores in double overtime. And, you know, another stunning performance by Hashik. And there goes Buffalo rolling into Ottawa, coming out with two wins. And it was, you know, they would come home and complete the sweep. In large part, you really noticed it then that the pressure was mounting on Alexi Yashin, that the pressure was mounting on the Senators to have no answer for Hashik. And, you know, that was the look. I mean, it just it set. Buffalo on its way after the heartbreaking defeat the year before against the Capitals in the conference final. It just looked like, okay, they are totally in sync now. And, you know, they've made some additions. We talked to Stu Barnes not long ago. Um, this was, this was Buffalo's launching pad to their run to the Stanley Cup final in 1999. And I don't think it could have been done with more authority with how they were constructed and what their identity was in 1999 than having Dom be so dominant in that first round 
and getting the timely scoring. Even like, my gosh, Marty, you go back and you look at some of the numbers, like even Verata was over a point a game in that series. Like he's, <laughs> But that's, but you go back through it. Like it was Rasmussen. It was uh Holzinger. Like I know it took Stu a long time to score, but there were so many guys and it was also timely. And that's why after all this time in Stanley cup history, you get the cliches that exist, you know, good goaltending, timely scoring. That was Buffalo in 1999. And Dom set the bar in that opening round. Whenever I talk to fans about the 99 playoff run for the Sabres, the, the trivia question that always comes up is, who is the Sabres' first line that year? You know, because oh. usually, like, marquee teams that go to the finals have this amazing first line. And it's always, yeah. well, Michael Pecco is the center. And then, uh, uh, who were the wingers? And then it was Dixon, Ward, and Vasla Varada. That was the first yeah. line. And you're thinking, mm-hmm. how does a team – and I remember also – After the 99, you know, obviously lost to Dallas, the rally in the plaza and everything. But mm-hmm. it was, who is the better team that made it to the finals? The 75 fly, uh, Sabres against the Flyers or the 99 Sabres against Dallas? But I'm like, the, the 75 Sabres were way better than the 99 Sabres. They just, the 99 Sabres had Dominic Kashek and it started against Ottawa how dominant he was. You just, you know, told us about all the numbers, but Dom was, I mean, he had won Vesna trophies. He had won two heart trophy already. Uh, But that dominance of 99 Mm -hmm. was on another level. Like, oh, inside 98 too, like his Washington series in 98, but Ottawa in 99, it really set him apart. We do have to rattle through. Uh, we got to get to break, but let's do it by talking very quickly about this because it doesn't get talked about enough. We talk about Pominville all the time. We had JP on recently to talk about his game three winner, yeah. but can we just very, very, very quickly go through game one of that series? I know you <laughs> and I did it and I, we did it in classic games years ago when COVID started. Yeah. And I just think that people never. I don't think we talk about it enough, quite frankly. And obviously, you know, we're sitting here today launching into an RJ marathon, if you will, remembering RJ starting tomorrow on MSG with classic games. But as, as much as I didn't thoroughly love watching the rebroadcast of this years ago, because I felt it was, I don't know, it was hard to explain. The fact that yeah. Buffalo came back as many times as they did in this game is also what makes it one of the most unique in in their playoff history. And I, I don't even know. How do you describe it after all these years? Winning 7-6 after scoring late and then winning it early in overtime. All I could say, it was a true roller coaster of emotions and a physical roller coaster because at times the puck was just sitting perfectly for guys. It was sticking to their stick. And, and at times it was... You know, you couldn't handle it. It was exploding. It was a grenade on your stick, and guys couldn't even handle the puck. Um, so it was a roller coaster physically and a roller coaster emotionally. When we tied it up, though, at the end, Tim Conley, little poker, right? And in it looked like a nothing play. It's just getting pucks to the net. It's so cliche, get pucks to the net, but it get pucked to the net. Conley pokes it in. I thought Ottawa was the better team, mm-hmm. but I thought we have that. That it right now. We have this fighting, battling type of 
of situation and we're going to get it done. And then when Drury scored in overtime, which was probably the ugliest overtime goal you could ever find, like Volchenkov who loses the puck, overskates the puck, Drury gets it, shot to the middle of the net from the blue line. Like how does Ray Emery not stop that puck? Like it was meant to be. I keep saying that series was meant to be. That's why it was so special game one. It really was. And obviously, as we announced yesterday on the show, the Sabres will be honoring the life and career of Hall of Fame broadcaster Rick Jenneret. It happens on Sunday at KeyBank Center, and it will include a special tribute uh, featuring roundtable discussions and conversations with broadcasters and alumni. It's remembering RJ, the man behind the mic, and it begins at 5 p.m. with doors opening at KeyBank Center at 3.30 General admission tickets are available now. They are free to the public, and we look forward to seeing you. The event will also air on MSG and stream live on Sabres.com, as well as our social platforms. And as mentioned, we announced today at the top of the hour that a whole run of remembering RJ through classic Sabres games launches tomorrow on MSG and runs for the next couple of weeks. Shannon Goldman from The Athletic is next here on Sabres Live.